Well, please turn in a Bible to Genesis chapter 37, please. Genesis chapter 37. We are continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and I'm so glad. I think you'll find this most timely. Just a, a point of information, an FYI, as was emailed out this past week, the La Mesa Community Center contacted us, and there are no meetings in city buildings in the month of May. So it looks like no Sunday services for us in the month of May. As elders, we plan to follow the county and city guidelines as they inform us as to when it's safe to meet. And when we do meet, when we do, we will seek to meet as, as safely as possible. That's our goal, to create as safe a context for everyone as we possibly can. So we look forward to that time that we can be together for now. Genesis chapter 37, beginning verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Verse 2 signals the beginning of the last section of the book of Genesis. A, a section with a distinct theme. The theme of God's providence. Jerry Bridges, in his fine book, Trusting God, defines God's providence as follows. His constant care and his absolute rule over all his creation. Constant care for and absolute rule over all his creation. The Heidelberg Catechism, a famous Reformation era teaching document, defines God, God's providence this way. Providence is the almighty an ever-present power of good, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Did you catch that? All things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now that's well said, but you won't find that textbook definition of providence here in this chapter. Here, instead, we find God's providence on display against the dark backdrop of human sinfulness and human evil. And I want to see with you how those two things relate. Divine providence and human sin. You see, Jacob, Jacob is the heir of the saving, redeeming promises of God, first given to his grandfather Abraham, and then to his father Isaac, and also now to Jacob. And Jacob at this point has 12 sons, 12 sons born through his two wives and two, in effect, servant wives. So, 12 sons through four wives. Now, if that sounds to you like a recipe for disaster, you are right. Verse 2 continues. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives, two of the servant wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Jacob, unfortunately, clearly favors his son Joseph, the son of his old age, we're told, one born of his, the one wife that he really loved, Rachel. He gives Joseph what the ESV calls a robe of many colors. It's probably a robe of, of long sleeves. It's a special robe of some kind. In fact, this, this word translated many colors or long sleeves is used of a princess's robe in 2 Samuel. That might be a hint here. It's a, a special robe, maybe an inference of some royalty of some kind. This is not helpful, this favoritism. And Joseph doesn't help things either. He brings a bad report about his brothers, literally an evil report. Might be that he's lying in some way or exaggerating the details. We don't know. But we do know how Joseph's brothers respond. Three times in this passage, we're told they hated him. Here, so much so, they can't speak peacefully to him. It's a picture of human sinfulness, a picture of human evil, but intermingled with their sin is what I would call the quiet providence of God. You see, Joseph has two dreams. It's really, really one dream in two forms. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you really going to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? I mean, they are incredulous. And so it says they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers, it says, were jealous of him. And this is an ominous note, this jealousy. His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. The dreams, the dreams point to the fact that more is going on here than meets the eye. And the doubling of Joseph's dream is important as well. Later on, Joseph interprets the pair of, of dreams that the Pharaoh has, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph says in Genesis 41, quote, the doubling, 
The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. The doubling, he says, means the thing is fixed. The fixed plans of God. That's what's being hinted at here. So read chapter 37 in its literary context. Read it in light of what comes before it and what comes after it in this book. What comes before is God's promises that through this family, he will give them a land, make them into a great people, a great nation, and through them bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. That comes before. What comes after, now we're told, are God's fixed, settled plans foreshadowed in these dreams. And we, the reader, know where this is going. We know through various twists and turns that Joseph becomes the number two guy in all of Egypt. He becomes Pharaoh's vice president, number two, second only to Pharaoh himself. But notice in this entire chapter, if you read the chapter in its entirety, it does not mention God once. Never is God quoted even. God does not speak here. God is not quoted in this section of Genesis all the way until Genesis 46. That's why I call this the quiet providence of God. I think you see it again in the next section as Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers and Joseph travels to where his brothers are supposed to be. He can't find them. But a man just happens to find Joseph wandering the fields and just happens to ask Joseph what he's looking for. And this same man just happened to overhear Joseph's brothers say where they were going. Seemingly random events that are not random at all in the quiet providence of God. The book of Esther in the Bible is similar to this scene. God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. We have a book of the Bible that never mentions God. But it's a powerful book about God's providence. At one point, a guy named Haman wants to destroy the Jewish people, especially a man named Mordecai. He schemes to have Mordecai condemned by the king. But just before, just before he can put his plan into action, we are told that night, that very night, the king could not sleep. Just some random, meaningless insomnia. But since he can't sleep, the king has the court history read to him and they just happened to read the portion where it tells of how Mordecai had spared the king's life by his actions. One of the turning points of the book. Because of a sleepless, seemingly random, seemingly meaningless night that was not random or meaningless at all in the quiet providence of God. Maybe even more famously, don't you see this when Caesar Augustus, emperor of the entire Roman Empire, decides one day, you know, I think I'll call for a census. 
And this census requires people to travel back to their ancestral hometown. A, a random and an inconvenient requirement forcing a young couple named Joseph and Mary, a young engaged couple, to travel to Joseph's ancestral hometown of Bethlehem, where Mary then delivers the child of whom she was uh, pregnant miraculously, had been conceived in her miraculously, a son named Jesus, fulfilling the prophet Micah's words, who said long before that the Christ, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Friends, it's the quiet providence of God. I want to ask you, how are you interpreting events in the world around you? Maybe even right now. How are you interpreting these? Worldwide pandemic. Economic shutdowns, personal shut-ins. How are you interpreting all this? It's just random, meaningless events, seemingly out of control. Is that your interpretation? What about events in your own life? How, how are you interpreting events in your own life personally? Have you, in effect, decided that God is absent from your life, that your life is this series of random events, just seemingly meaningless moments. I mean, sure, maybe God is ruling over pandemics. Maybe he's busy with the big stuff, but with your individual life, he's really not involved. Is that what you believe? That you are, in effect, invisible to God. Is that how you feel? Invisible to God? The Bible's account of Joseph's life wants to change your interpretation, if so. The question here is, how will God fulfill these fixed plans represented by Joseph's dreams? How will he bring this to pass? Look at verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They must have recognized that special long-sleeved robe that they hated. And now they're out in the middle of nowhere. No one around to see how they will give full vent to their jealousy and hatred. Verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Did you catch that? He has dreams that he's going to rule over us. Let's kill him and see what becomes of his Dreams. That's the issue here. What will become of these dreams representing God's fixed plans? What will become of God's fixed plans in light of their sin? Can God's providence be thwarted by human sinfulness? That's the question. 
Well, Reuben, the oldest, tries to intervene. Let, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit, this empty well. He's actually, we're told, trying to rescue Joseph. So the brothers do. They, they throw Joseph into a pit. And in verse 25, they sit down to eat. Can you imagine the callousness? You have thrown your brother into a pit. He is languishing in this pit and you are having lunch. Well, then a caravan of nomadic traders goes by and, and Judah, one of the other brothers, decides that money is better than murder. So they sell Joseph into slavery and they create an elaborate ruse to deceive their father and make it look like Joseph has indeed been killed by a wild animal. And these brothers, these brothers live with this lie on their conscience for years. Now, in all of this that I just talked about, we are not told anything about what Joseph said during this time. We are not told anything about what Joseph did or what Joseph felt during this entire time. Not until later in Genesis are we told of Joseph's cries for mercy. Now here, the inspired narrator wants to fix our gaze on the brothers. The inspired narrator wants to focus our attention on their sin, on the ugliness and the darkness of human evil and sinfulness. But, but catch how the account ends. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites, these traders, had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Recall, we're reading this in its literary context. We know where this story goes. We know that Joseph rules as second in command to Pharaoh himself. Now we find, yes, Joseph's been sold into slavery, but taken to Egypt. And not just that, he now has access to Pharaoh's inner circle. So, how does God further his fixed plans in this passage? By using human sinfulness. It's been said that God uses sin sinlessly. And that's what you're seeing here. Joseph's brothers seek to thwart his dreams and so, in fact, thwart God's plans, and they end up furthering God's plans. You see, God never sins. He never endorses evil. He is never culpable, never ever culpable for any wrongdoing. But in his providence, he is able to use sin sinlessly. The theological term for this is compatibilism. Compatibilism. In this one event in Genesis 37, two parties are acting freely. The brothers are freely acting on their sin, and God is freely acting on his fixed plans in the same event. Both are compatible. God's absolute sovereignty and our real responsibility, our real moral culpability, those are perfectly compatible. We are 
responsible moral creatures. We make real decisions and real choices because God has ordained that our choices are real and our decisions do matter. God has ordained that, but the human will is not ultimately decisive. The divine will is. And the greatest proof of this, the greatest proof, is the cross of Christ. There, morally responsible, morally culpable people freely acted to crucify the Son of God. But through their sinful, morally responsible, morally culpable actions, Jesus was, quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. That's what we're seeing in Genesis 37 as well. Now, we must be careful how we apply this reality that God uses sin sinlessly. The fact that God uses human evil never diminishes human responsibility. And the fact that God uses human evil never diminishes the pain of experiencing human evil. Just because the narrator is silent about Joseph's perspective does not mean Joseph was not traumatized by these events. I'm sure he was. Listen, abuse in its many forms has real and sometimes lasting effects. We should not minimize that. So we must be careful with this truth, careful in how we apply this truth, but we should be comforted by this truth as well. See, I think there are two main ways we can view providence as it relates to suffering, suffering of any kind whether suffering as a result of other people's sin or just suffering from life in a fallen world with coronaviruses, regardless of the source of the suffering. Two main ways we can process providence in relation to suffering. One is to become cynical. In his excellent book that I would recommend, Night, Elie Wiesel describes his horrific experience during the Holocaust. Wiesel was put into the forced labor camp called Buchenwald. And he tells of a time when a young boy was hanged there. The boy was thought to be somehow connected with an act of sabotage that had happened. And the SS guards make an example out of this boy and two others by hanging them. And as they are hung, the prisoners are forced to march past the condemned, looking at their faces. As this is happening, a man behind Wiesel mutters, Where is God now? Where is he? Wiesel writes, I heard a voice within me answer, Here he is. God is hanging on those gallows. In other words, the the idea of God, the reality of God, seems to have died for Wiesel in that moment. Now that is horrific suffering, horrific 
suffering at the hands of human evil. But it illustrates one way we can process suffering. Maybe the concept of God's existence doesn't exactly die for us, but a, a personal hope in, a personal trust in God does die. We start to think, if that's how you're going to run my life, then I don't want to relate to you personally because I don't think I can trust you. Is that where you are right now? Or where you have been? Something of God's character, something of God's nature, something of God's goodness has in effect died for you. Mentally or emotionally, you feel dead to something of God's reality. I don't want to for a moment minimize what you've gone through. But Joseph's life, Joseph's life reveals another way to process suffering. You see, the intended effect of this passage is comfort. To be comforted, comforted knowing that God is able to use even evil to accomplish his good. That's the comfort here for us. God intends for us to be comforted knowing that he is able to use even evil to accomplish good. What good does God accomplish, you might ask? Well, we know God uses trials and suffering to refine and, and strengthen our faith. And we know God uses trials and suffering to transform us, making, more like, making us more like his son. In fact, we're told that we have fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. But the specific good, the specific good God accomplishes through specific trials, we rarely discern. Puritan author and pastor John Flavel put it well when he said, God's providence can only be read backwards. Only looking back perhaps only from the perspective of eternity, do we more fully understand. But the cynicism comes in, I think, when we try to read hard providences in the present, since his providence can only be read backwards. It's like, it's like God is driving the car of our lives and he is looking through the front windshield, and he is steering the car, and he knows where he's taking us. He knows. But we don't know. All we can do is look through the back window and see all the ground he's covered, all that he's accomplished in our lives. We can't look through the windshield and figure it out. We look through the back window and we see more and more of what God has taken us through. We can only read his providence backwards. But Joseph's life, Joseph's life comforts us nonetheless. Because here we find that God uses even the evil we experience to bring to pass his good. And you can apply this personally. Jesus said, 
Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Not a, not a bird dies apart from your father's will. He said the hairs of your head are all numbered. So you can make personal connection with this reality. That though he seems silent perhaps to you, Joseph's life teaches you that God is always there in his quiet providence, never wasting any suffering, never wasting an ounce of our pain, but through it all, accomplishing good. That's the comfort held out to us here. So how, how can we experience that comfort? Well, let me give you one word that I think describes how. It's the word surrender. A, a trusting surrender. See, the comfort comes from acknowledging that your life is not like one of those choose-your-own-adventure books. Have you seen those where you, you decide where you go? The outcome hinges on you. Choose this turn to this page, you end up here, but choose this, you end up at another page, ended up somewhere else. You choose your own adventure. Life, according to the Bible, is not like that, not in an ultimate sense. Yes, our choices matter. God has ordained that our decisions matter. Yes, we are responsible moral agents, but what is ultimate, what is ultimate is God's will and God's work in every moment by his quiet, loving, good providence. And a, a posture of heart, a posture of heart of trusting surrender embraces that. Author Jerry Bridges tells of how after the death of his first wife, a friend of his passed him a note containing a prayer from an unknown author. It goes like this. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. That's the posture of heart I'm talking about, a trust, a trusting surrender. And that posture of heart, friends, produces comfort in your soul. And here's why. Here's why we must trust like that. Here's why. Because Joseph is a picture, a picture of innocent suffering leading to the salvation of many. In this case, many are physically saved from the coming famine. But that picture, that, that pattern, points to the ultimate innocent sufferer, Jesus, and his innocent suffering brings many to an eternal salvation for all who will believe. You see, where Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, Jesus was betrayed by one of his close disciples. And where Joseph is here, silent in his suffering, Jesus was the silent Lamb of God bearing our sins. But where Joseph saved many through his life, 
by God's plans. Jesus saved many by his death in God's plans. And as Donald Barnhouse put it so well, the God who brought life out of death can bring good out of evil. That's why we can and must trust him, friends. God who brought life out of the death of his son can bring good out of the evil you experience. I want to urge you to surrender to him, perhaps for the first time, trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God, to take away your sins and reconcile you to God himself. I urge you to do that. But I want to urge you as well and urge myself to this posture of heart, of trusting surrender to the quiet providence of God in whatever, whatever you've gone through or are going through right now. Whatever circumstances you're thinking about from the past or the present. Maybe pray those words that Jerry Bridges described. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. Friends, God has comfort for us here, knowing that he in his providence is able to use even evil to accomplish his Good. Let's pray. And just right where you are, if you would, take this moment to cast your cares on the Lord. God tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. He cares for you. Cast your, perhaps, cynicism. I know those temptations can be real. Perhaps cast your unbelief or maybe ways you have charged God with wrong. And let us together posture our hearts in trusting, or perhaps mysterious, but trusting surrender to him. Come what may. Father, we do thank you that though there is mystery here, there is glorious revelation of who you are and what you're doing right now. So help us to trust you like this. Help us to, as it were, surrender to your quiet, loving, and good providence. For you are good, as you have shown in your Son. And we thank you in his name.